o'clock, and here we go on a Monday night. Buckle up. It's time for Iron Sports. Oldies 95.9 and 106.9. I'm Mike Balsamo. Going to be a great show. And Ira, this is not the first time we've done this. Probably won't be the last, but this show was pre-recorded. Very good reason for that. You got plans tonight. I want to go to the Heat game again. I went last week for against the Bulls. It was exciting to be down there at uh, FTX Arena, not the American Airlines Arena, and watching uh, the exciting game. But I, I'm pumped to go down again. Uh, it was. It's just the, the Miami right now is... They're clearly the number one seed in the East. They had a, an amazing week where they beat the Sixers, the Bulls, and the Nets. And uh, they only lost to the Bucks because one of the craziest endings you could imagine in a game. Uh, short of that, the, the Heat are rolling. And they're not even playing with Kyle Lowry, who was their star free agent acquisition. So they have an easy... Look, if they lose tonight against the Rockets, which are the worst team in worst basketball, team <laughs> but it's good. I mean, I, luckily, I was able to get really, really, really great seats for not spending that much money. So I'm, I'm pumped to go down to that game. We were talking before we went on air. It's funny. I don't think anybody outside of South Florida thinks Miami can win it or even get to the finals. <laughs> Meanwhile, well, talking I about, think they can win it all. Why yeah, couldn't they? They. The thing is, people, you have to watch the Heat to see how good they are. They're, they, they're the one team that has the depth. They have so many players. When you're bringing Tyler Hero as the sixth man, clearly going to be the sixth man of the year. He's uh, their leading scorer coming off the bench. And it's just that plus uh, Caleb Martin, who's playing great. Cave Vincent, who will be the in the second team once Lowry comes back, but is admirably running the point guard position. Uh, this team is great. And when you have players like Adebayo and Butler, you're two superstars who don't have to score. They There's some game. Butler will score 35 a game, 35 in a game, but he might he score no problem 10. scoring 12. 12, yeah. and he's not going to complain. No. You don't have to keep him happy. There's no one has to be kept happy on this team. Everybody, I think one of the things we talk about in team sports all the time is accepting your roles. Accepting your roles, embracing your roles. It seems like that's what Riley and Spolstra finally have this team where everybody, they know what their role is and they're going to do it. I mean, even from Duncan Robinson starting, like Hero should say, I should start, not Duncan Robinson. Hero is playing much better than Duncan Robinson. Yep. But it's like, he's okay. He's coming off the bench. That's fine. Max Struess is playing great coming off the bench. I mean, you're getting, so, Denman is, is they have, they, they have so much depth and I think that's really going to help them in the playoffs. That's what hurt them two years ago with the Lakers when they had all those injuries and couldn't really rebound from them with when Drogic got hurt and Adebayo got hurt. This team will be able to withstand injuries, whereas you know in the playoff series, a lot of these teams are going to get hurt and then they're going to lose. So we have a great guest coming up, Ira, and this is in West Palm Beach and South Florida. Spring training baseball and minor league baseball is huge. It's huge for uh, the, our economy, tourism, everything that revolves around some of these areas revolves around baseball, and nobody really knows what's going on. I read even avid baseball fans like me and you, so we bring in Jared Diamond from the Wall Street Journal, and he's going to fill us in. Yeah, and I think that's going to be interesting. It's weird because you're talking, we're here, we, we're right at ground zero at baseball right now. There's five teams that should be playing baseball every day. The superstars are playing. You're, you're going to see it, but if you're not in South Florida, you're like, oh, well, who's playing, who's not playing. And in the last few years, some of the starters rarely play the spring trade. A lot of them haven't been playing that much. So it's not really that. It's like a wake me up when they play the major league games. Now they've heard, oh, this game has been canceled. That game has been canceled. But until you're starting to say, look, in April, there's no opening day. When you're, when you're, when it turns around, then they're going to pay attention to it. Because people don't pay attention to spring training. You know, people who pay attention to, to spring training football or, you know, they really don't until the season starts. And so I think that's where, but we're feeling it now. And that's why I'm glad Jared comes on because they're clearly is they're on there's a lockout they're not you know they, right now they have canceled like two weeks of baseball supposedly so we'll see you know i, I went to um lunch in abacoa last weekend and not only was it a ghost town but everyone there was depressed like the servers were telling us how miserable it is 
meanwhile, you know, everything's lit up like spring training's going on. The signs are up everywhere. There's just nobody playing. It's really bizarre. Well, remember, we have two stadiums here in West Palm Beach with St. Louis and Miami in one of the stadiums and Washington and Houston in the other. And there's a game every single day, every day. in either one of those stadiums. So when they're playing, one's away. And sometimes there's two games. So there, you're, you're going to have that, the lunch crowd, the dinner crowd, the late, everything. It's just in for all the restaurants and everything. And anyway, you, I've told you, I like in the Ford, in the a uh, fit team park or the 40 the ballpark of the Palm Beaches. Yeah. I wish there was more around there, but still uh it's, it's in Abacoa where Roger Dean Stadium is. It's 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 a party atmosphere. When the Cardinal fans come in here and just it feel you feel like you're in St. Louis. Absolutely you do. So Ira, kind of a sad uh sad week for you as you're getting ready to say and you're one of the biggest Duke basketball fans on the planet, if not the biggest. And not officially, you know, saying goodbye to Coach K just yet, but it, it you know, you kind of are as he plays, uh, you know, his final game at Cameron Indoor and facing off against, you know, his longtime rivals with North Carolina. Yeah, I felt bad. I, this is a game I wanted to go to, and the pricing, it was $5,000. I told to you go. not to do it. Well, it was just, <laughs> I, 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 when the tickets came out, in, when he first made the announcement, it was like 1000 And I'm thinking, eh, it'll probably be around there. Maybe it goes down a little bit lower. And then it just kept going up and up and up. And one of the reasons is they decided to invite 100 ex, 200 ex-players. I think 100, almost 90 showed up for the game. So you have the ex-players, their friends and family came. And then you have the Jerry Seinfelds of the world, the Adam Silvers, like all the celebrities that were there at the game. And that just, it just, and there's stadium only seats 8,500 people. So at that point, it's just the tickets, there's, there's just no tickets available. There was like nothing available for this. So it became too expensive. Um, I questioned, I, I'm, I questioned after watching it, I sort of questioned putting the ceremony. This is very w- strange that you would do a ceremony like this with as much pomp and circumstance when this is not the last game of the year. Yeah. And you put pressure on your team. And I did think I liked it and I enjoyed it. Of course, I watched it. But in essence, Duke lost the game. They lost 90-41. The team was not prepared for this game. There's too much pressure, too much emotion. Is this something that would have been better? Not saying we don't do it next year. I mean, Coach K could have come back next year. He could have done the entire thing for the Duke Carolina game and had the whole thing instead of him coaching the game. I, I just, I don't know. I just feel it was too much for this year for having it and maybe too much pressure. And it was, it was great. And I just think the speeches before the game and then you had it in the speech after the game, especially after a loss, it just seemed too much. And, and I just, I don't know. I felt, I felt as a Duke fan, I enjoyed it. But I think if I wasn't a Duke fan, I'd say, really, do we need this? Is this a little over the top and all those things? And, and I think from that perspective, I also think, I, you know, I don't think I've ever seen something that's more been in sports universally criticized than ESPN for how they handle this. So <laughs> if you watched ESPN in the last like two months, they push this game every hour of every moment of every day. Six o'clock Saturday, weird start of a game, but six o'clock Saturday, we're going to have this game. Everyone, they talk about it. So the game comes out and I'm like, why would they schedule Kansas, Texas, like at four o'clock to end at six? You know, at, at that point, I think it was like three thirty, whatever. But th- there was not enough gap from the time frame from the game. And so they weren't able to do any of the Coach K walking out, having the, all the 80, 90 players standing out, greeting him. Like that, the, before the game was the fun aspect of it. I mean, for the Super Bowl, we have eight hours of pregame. For this, we had nothing because then they kept the Kansas-Texas game on ESPN. You had to go to ESPN 
uh, your app to watch the, whatever was going on with Coach K. Then they moved you to ESPN2. Then you're watching this. The Kansas Tech game goes to overtime. Then you switch back. I mean, they were treating it like a normal whatever. I couldn't believe like one of those tournament games they have. You can't build this. What was ESPN thinking? There's no reason they couldn't have started the Kansas-Texas game, which is a big game on ESPN2, or they started the game an hour earlier. There were so many options, but it wasn't like, oh, we're so surprised. And if they come and say, oh, it was overtime, we weren't prepared. The game was already, the overtime started at 6, 6.10 when the Duke game yeah. started. So it was it was a mess. I think it was, the Kansas-Texas game was at 4. The Duke game was at 6.10. I, I just, the whole thing from ESPN's perspective was handled horrendously, and they, they just stepped on the entire moment. Especially for, like you said, how much they promoted it. You're trying to get all eyes on this, and then you don't show any of the pageantry for why anyone wanted to tune in anyway. You so had, you a had terrible call. Grand Hill, Christian Lehner, all the Duke royalty, all the players that were great, standing on the middle of the court as Coach K walks through this gauntlet of players and he's high-fiving everybody. That was precious to see, and that no one saw it because it was on the ESPN app and they show highlights of it. But do you want to watch it live? I I just they totally stepped on the story. And for someone like ESPN, you think they know what they're doing. And it, I just even haven't heard a good reason why they couldn't even bring the game earlier. So was stupid on their part. The whole thing makes no sense. Well, you start the game at 7. You're the ones who moved it to 6 <laughs> o'clock. Yeah. Well, what's the issue here? This is Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. So, talking about just North Carolina and Duke, Ira, you know, Boston Red Sox versus the Yankees, that's probably the, the number one rivalry, you know, across sports, but Duke and North Carolina might be second. I mean, there's a lot of people who could make the case for that, and I know for me that, you know, growing up, I wasn't a huge fan of either team. I still watched every time they played every season. So this really has been just one of the biggest rivalries in American sports. Well, the fact that for the last 30, 40 years, even longer, they have been two of the premier programs. They're yeah. <laughs> and they're only eight miles apart. And the students know each other. Everybody, the players play in the summer. They're, they're literally right next to each other. I lived halfway between. I, it was when I went to law school at Duke. I, it was the same distance to go to North Carolina was was to go to Durham to go to Duke. So, and the state of North Carolina is all North Carolina more than Wake Forest and Duke. So it really is North Carolina. And there's that one little segment that is Duke, but Duke is that national school in the whole sea of Carolina. But that's the rivalry. That it, just the fact that you go through the history of the teams. It, it, there was a point where every one of the teams was one or number one in how many years in a row. So that's what made it so great. I mean, Coach K's record against Carolina was 50 wins now, 47 losses. So I mean, here's the most winningest coach of all time with 1190 wins against Carolina, it's only 50 and 47. Mm -hmm. So that's what the aspect, that's the other aspect of this game. This game itself was going to be big. I don't know why you need to bring all these players back and I just seem to be the players, this team, the Duke team, which was having a great year, that's beat Carolina by 20 points a month ago. But since that loss, Carolina's been on a roll. I mean, they've won seven out of eight. They were on the bubble. Now they're clearly after, if they were not on the bubble, you know, after winning seven, eight, but now clearly beating Duke, they're they're going to be like a 10 or nine seed. So that really helped them. And, and the team that probably the way they're looking and playing is going to be very, very good. But it was like, I think that there was always going to be that aspect. I've been, I've seen four Carolina Duke games in uh, Cameron and it is crazy. I mean, you get there an hour and a half before the game and I like lose your voice by the time it starts. <laughs> I saw Vince Carter, Antoine Jameson. I mean, I, I've the Hurley Hill hears Leitner. I mean, those games have been just tremendous. So, um, but it was, it was like one of those games that I think Duke just ran out of gas. I mean, Duke jumped out to this lead and you're like, okay, they're, they're, 
you know, they're going to, they're going to hold on. And, uh, uh, and then Duke went, it was like Caroline was up 28, 23 with seven minutes to go in the first half. Duke went on a 14 to one run. They're up by two at the end of the second half, end of the first half. And you're like, okay, everything's fine. But with 61, 61 with 10 minutes to go. And suddenly Caroline just went on this gigantic run. I mean, they were 21 to 10 to finish the game. They scored from on 10 of their last 12 possessions. The reason Duke lost the game, they couldn't stop anybody on defense. I mean, they do Carolina played five players, Backot, who man, Armando Backot, 23.7 rebounds, Brady Manick, who's their center, but the best three-point shooter, five for ten for three. RJ Davis, Caleb Love, and Leaky Black. They played the entire second half and they played great. And they just could not, and Duke couldn't stop them. And the star players, Bonchero was 11 for 26 for Duke. AJ Griffin, who's played so well this year, came up small, only scoring five points. And it was really in the in Keels, Moore, and Roach, their guard play didn't come in well. Just a terrible, terrible loss. I mean, they showed all the Duke fans crying after the game. I don't think it's worthy of crying. But the <laughs> fact is, is that it was just, you, 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 I think Carolina said, we don't want to be part of this celebration. Like, you want to have this big celebration, but we're Carolina. Like, we have pride. Like, we're, you know, they feel they're better than the Duke <laughs> program. So I think it was like, it was almost, they were challenging to Carolina in that. No, I, I agree with you. Yeah, there's no no reason for them to show Patrick. Maybe another reason why doing this next year when the, he's not coaching the game so they can maybe celebrate a little bit with him and be happy about the rivalry as opposed to we beat you, we won, we're getting out of here. Would this have been thing. any less if they did it the next – I mean, it's like it's like when Lou Gehrig gave his speech, he wasn't playing, you know, for the, for the, uh, for the, the mm-hmm. Yankees. Like, I just don't – I, I, I think that there was no – I've been to the Wade ceremony and the Bosch ceremony. Like, I don't understand. Like, I think it's very weird that in the middle of a season you'd have a ceremony like this. When he's got games left to play. When there's still games <laughs> left to play. And then he had he had to come out afterwards and say, I'm sorry, this was unacceptable. So here this is supposed to be a celebration. But he has to apologize before he gave the speech after the game to come out to the fans and apologize for losing. You know, it just it's just so weird. The whole thing was weird. And I just – I'm not, I mean, I don't know. I wish I was at the game, of course, and I think it's great, but I think it should have been done. And then they have a problem with the handshake line. So they have, at the end of the game, we have all these issues with fights and the handshakes, but it looks like um, Chris Carroll is a Duke player, didn't shake hands with Hubert Davis. And Hubert Davis is like, I don't even have a problem with this person, but I guess because Davis didn't shake hands before the game. But why would you even have something like this? Like, just, it seemed like Duke was just off, I think, the pressure of the moment, pressure of the game, pressure of everything, and it just didn't feel right, this whole thing. And, and talking about, you know, you, you brought up the Yankees. I'm a Yankee. Yankee fan. And I got to tell you, it was a little cringeworthy watching the farewell tours for Jeter and Mariano. And, and I'm a fan of the team. And you're seeing, you know, the twins are made a, a chair for Mariano out of broken bats. I like the pageantry, but you're supposed to be rivals still a little yes. bit. Like to me, it just, it didn't fit. They could have done something after the season and really dedicated a day to him at Yankee Stadium rather than 30, you know, 30 uh, ballpark tour. So no, I'm totally with you on that. Where, where, do, we, where do we go next from here for Duke though? Well, the, John Shire is going to be the coach, and I think I love this topic because for years I always said who was going to be the next coach, and I, I really never predicted. Shire was surprising to me. I, it was very surprising because there was every you're, you're waiting for these coaches that coach at other schools to come back, and it, when you read the book we had Ian O'Connor on, and when you heard even what uh, Coach Gay said, which was the continuity. I mean, it had to be somebody on that staff, and Shire was the was the next man up to, on the staff because Capel, when Capel was the lead assistant, left to go to Pitt. But, you know, you look at these legends, like when Bear Bryant retired, Ray Perkins, 
Giants football coach came back and uh, and he came back and, and was it was really just not it was average and then lasted four years and went back to coach at Tampa Bay. Woody Hayes retired from Ohio State. Oh, Bruce came came from Ohio State nine years, most of them nine and three. Uh, Bo Schembecker was replaced by Gary Moeller, who had that one really good year, but then was fired after three years because of, he was drunk at a bar one time. And uh, then in basketball, John Wooden, Gene Bartow came in from Illinois, had two good years, but then just left. I mean, he would took two teams to the Final Four, but that wasn't enough. When you when you just win ten out of two years at twelve titles, you know if you're not winning championships, that you're going to leave. And then Dean Smith, Bill Guthridge, his longtime assistants took his place. Um, and then he had two Final Fours in three years, but his last year was bad, was forced out. And even the Bobby Knight when. Mike Davis came in. It was a longtime assistant, but you know, Knight was forced out, so it was weird. So this is what this is almost like the whole Bob Stoops, Lincoln Riley situation, where your a coach is retiring and bringing in a young, unproven assistant that has not coached anywhere before, thinking that this is going to work. A lot of pressure on John Shire, with high standards, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I think this is. This is that's where I just I keep looking at who the you know, we look at the past. It's very hard to succeed, you know, to become the successor of a true legend. Very, very hard. Zero chance, in your opinion, Brad Stevens comes and grabs his job. Uh, in when? A couple years from yeah, now? Yeah, maybe like five, six years from now. <laughs> well, I think it's always, the point is, as they always said, is you want to be the coach that follows the guy who follows the coach. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one you want to follow. Like, I mean, again, it's like, and rarely do you have legends follow a legends. In Kentucky, Adolph Rupp retired, and Joby Hall, who became, that was, I guess, Joby Hall is considered a, a, a legend. He's won national championships. So I think there is a point, but it's very rare that you have legend, you know, we talked about coaches. We very, very rare you have a Brett Favre and then Aaron Rodgers. It's hard to be the next person after a legend. Absolutely, and I feel bad for the guy who's got to coach the Patriots the year after Belichick that's, leaves. That's, like, that's, a, that's an impossible yeah. one. That's impossible. But so, maybe unless it's his son, and that would be what they're thinking about is maybe have his son take over, and that would yeah, be an interesting. It could be interesting stuff. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, Mike Balsamo here as well. So what's next in college basketball, Iron? Because my phone keeps going off, and people are trying to get me into brackets, so I'm starting to get Well, excited. next week we're going to bring – I'm working on guests next week to help us with the brackets. We don't have any of the brackets. Murray State already punched their ticket. Um, if you look at the, the question – this week is all these conference tournaments that you're seeing. A lot of the games that matter the most are not the the uh, Big Ten tournament because those teams are really, and it's really going to be these other smaller tournaments are who gets in, who doesn't, and even the early rounds of like the ACC tournament because so many, like the last four buys in or Wake is in, uh, last four out is Virginia Tech and the next four out is Virginia. So you have teams like those ACC schools in the first, like they'll be playing in that Wednesday game that really matters. That's going to be the difference if they're going to get in or out. Um, and then you, so I think that's where the, you're looking at teams like Xavier, Wyoming, Rutgers, at SMU, Indiana, BYU, Dayton, Virginia Tech, Virginia, VCU, Florida, even Florida's on. You know, all, all these teams are in the bubble. All these teams can sort of play their way in, and I think that's what makes this exciting. No one, I hate to say it, but no one on these big conferences really remembers that who wins the championship on the Saturday and Sunday. It's these other things that make a difference, and they usually, by Sunday, they have the, the bracket already set, so we'll talk next Monday about the whole thing, but that's where uh, it looks like the number one seeds will be Gonzaga, Arizona, Kansas, uh, we want number one seeds. Then you got Wisconsin, Kentucky, Duke, and Auburn as maybe two seeds. So, Ira, it, it's that time of year, and the national media can only talk about one thing, Aaron Rodgers. 
We don't have to talk about them nearly as long as they do, but this is an important day going into tomorrow, Ira, for decisions to be made by the Green Bay Packers. I know because I'm nervous. We're taping the show at 3 o'clock right <laughs> now, and I'm afraid happen. if I'm going to be at the Heat game tonight and this story breaks, then I don't know what I'm going to do. I have to call in whatever, my own show that's being taped because I am scared because Aaron Rodgers did say that March 8th is it's the final day to franchise tag, and Devontae Adams is a star-wide receiver, so he'd be franchised that day tomorrow. And supposedly Aaron Rodgers put tomorrow it's his unofficial deadline to make a decision whether he's going to play somewhere else if he's going to retire or whether he's going to play for the Packers and I I have to say this I think he's deciding between retiring and playing for the Packers I, I can think see that I think that's what it is I I think it's hard. he right now they're they're going off they're offering him 50 million dollars they they've now turned last year he was I, they weren't listening to me they don't appreciate me they drafted Jordan Love all this now he runs the he runs the whole operation why would he go anywhere else he has total power in this organization the, Tom Brady did not have power over Belichick clearly Matt LaFleur Gutekunst everyone Mike Murphy the entire brain trust of Green Bay will do anything Aaron Rodgers wants to do so he now has well, he's not going to get this power anywhere else and offering $50 million and he has all his players and everything that's there. So I think it's a question where he wants, he might want to retire like he, or at least that could be the situation, but you know, he says he's conflicted. He's this, he's that. So we'll see tomorrow. I mean, people are, you know, on up as being a drama queen, everything, which he is. I mean, he was, he criticized Brett Favre for doing the same thing that he is doing oh, yeah. right now, but he loves the drama, <laughs> but it's so funny that Packers really put a lot of pressure on Favre. And they're not putting pressure on Rod. They do not want to upset Rodgers at all. Like in the comments, they're like, "Let it, let him make his decision. Whatever he wants, it's fine. It's great." Well, they were looking at Aaron Rodgers at 24 years old or 25 in practice, and now they're looking at Jordan Love in practice. There must be a little difference in the skill levels. And the teams are thinking about you know Denver, Pittsburgh, and Tennessee are the three teams that people come out. People keep mentioning Denver time and time again. Um, I don't know. I just I'm not sold. I think it is retirement. I. I think I'm I'm like 60-40 he comes back to the Packers and 40% he'll just retire. Like I think he'll just say I'm done playing but it's, the money is so great he's not going to 50 million doing anything else but he's earned a t- tremendous amount but I listen to him on the uh, Pat McAfee show all the time and he, he does he he does view this as a grind. He doesn't he doesn't have that I mean, I'm listening it's to not Tom, his passion. It's not. And you listen to Brady and McAfee and you just listen to them and they go on forever. I mean, Brady has his show for an hour and McAfee, and on McAfee, Rogers goes on and Brady loves the aspect of preparing he for the game. Practice. Like, yeah, he like, loves <laughs> practice. He loves preparing. Rogers, it's sort of like, I want to go, I'm, I'm on a juice cleanse and I'm this and I'm that. It's not, he's not, it's more, there's more to it. I think Brady would, uh, Brady would be someone who would be a great coach. I mean, I think he'd be, I don't think Rogers would be a good coach at all, but I, that's where I think the difference is. I think Rogers doesn't, if he feels like he's earned enough money, wants to do other things. Um, I don't know if he wants to play. I don't think this is about the team. I think it's, if he wants to play or not. I think, I'm telling you, I think Brady seemed more like he wants to play than Rodgers does at this moment. No, I, I agree with you. Um, one thing I will say about the other teams that are involved, Ira, I think that this would be a different scenario, and I do think those are all fine landing places. I think Pittsburgh's the best place. The running game, the defense, great receivers. I'd want to go to Pittsburgh if that was my choice. But they're all in the AFC. If any of those three teams you mentioned were in the NFC, maybe that's more enticing for Aaron because it's a lot easier path to the Super Bowl. Green Bay, of course, is not going to want to trade and move him inside the division, I mean, inside the conference. So I think that's a little bit of a hang-up, too. If I'm Aaron, do I want to go to the AFC and have to go through Allen, Mahomes, Herbert, Burrow? He's, he can, if he does stay, he's kind of walking back to the NFC Championship game. 
Well, I'm telling you, if you're if you're in Dallas or LA and he announces his retirement, you should feel really you're good happy. yourself. And 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 all these people in Seattle who don't think what I, this is the thing, Russell Wilson, he go, I can't win in Seattle. What, why not? I have no idea why Seattle would ever even think of trading Russell Wilson. Now Russell said he, he's happy being there. You have a quarterback. The rest of the whole NFC doesn't. You're the one, the top two or three quarterbacks in the whole. He's conference. probably the best yet. And so better than Dak Prescott, better than Matthew Stafford. Why would you not go? I, I, this whole idea, Seattle has no. They go, Seattle has no chance against Super Bowl. That's craziness. Like. I, this whole thing about Seattle is I, I look at them as one of the favorites. He was hurt. La- their record was so bad. He, he missed eight games last year. So the point is, uh, no, I think it's this is tomorrow. People say, oh, let's make a decision. But it is going to be if he decides he's going to retire. That's a seismic shift throughout the whole NFC and really opening it up to a lot of teams. Oh, Sean, Sean McVay is going to be loving it. Yeah. And especially <laughs> and, 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 and Mike McCarthy, and you're Mike yeah. McCarthy. You have the Dallas now and you're feeling really good about coming back and being one of the favorites. No, I agree with you completely. So the combine's going on, and it seems like, Ira, more and more teams don't care about the combine at all. I mean, it's coming out like the Jets coach, Robert Salah, is like, I'm not even going. I, I, I send people for that. I, I don't need to do this. I don't put that much stock into the combine either because we've seen it. Here's the interesting stat. The last four people to break a record at the combine didn't get drafted. So that shows you how important it is. You're an all-time great at one thing, and you didn't get drafted. The only thing I'll take away from this is that my hands are bigger than Kenny Pickett's. Well, yeah, I mean, Kenny Pickett's, they measured his hands. His hands are small, so but same size as Michael Vick's. I mean, I, I, I guess I, the, the hand size was a big deal. Malik Willis, who I've seen playing games, I saw him against Mississippi, looked terrible. He looked he looked great throwing against nobody. So, so look, you look good when you're throwing a ball and there's no one rushing you, yeah. and that's really... <laughs> there's a broom in your face right. sometimes. I mean, there's a broom. I mean, that, it's like the craziest thing in the world that that would be, you know, that's the definition of what... There's no way. I mean, if that's how we play games, then you can turn that, game, that thing on before... For the uh, the Pro Bowl, the skills competition, but that's not who we. You know, that's it's it's ludicrous. I, again, I think I, I'm happy to see that the combine is losing relevance because I'd rather look what's on tape when you're playing somebody. Yeah. Football's a sport that you really are playing other people and you're playing against it, and I think that what makes the difference. And look at you know Russell Wilson will forever be the poster boy of that. I mean Tom Brady too, but Russell Wilson third round pick because a little small, you, you know. Like, Probably doesn't have big hands. I never got Russell. But if Wilson's you saw him play in Wisconsin, you saw you him play saw in State. Yeah. You saw he was a great college quarterback, and he should have been drafted higher. No, yeah, the whole thing to me is just a little bit crazy, and it's not the same sport, Ira. But remember when Kevin Durant couldn't do one rep of two twenty five, and he yeah. was like a laughing stock. And then he like, did anyone think Kevin Durant wasn't good because he couldn't bench two twenty five? Yeah, and, and now he's an all-time NBA great. Right, and they said, well, he'll have to put on weight to, to bench. I'm like, no, he won't have to do it. <laughs> Did you watch him play in college? <laughs> yes. He is amazing. Like, right. This guy does not need to gain 20 pounds of muscle to, to do bench presses. Right. The bench pressing, the 40-yard dashes, all that. I mean, Jordan Davis ran great. Now, look, Jordan Davis is 360 pounds, and he ran a 40-yard dash in 4.75, which is truly amazing and great. But Jordan Davis is never going to have to run 40. I mean, he's a defensive <laughs> lineman. He has to run like 10, 5, 2 feet, 3 feet. It's not, that's not what his, it's not his skill set in terms of what he has to do for that position. So it's great that he's fast and he's very big and, and all these other things. But you've seen Jordan Davis play now for two years for Georgia. You know who Jordan Davis is. That's a, He's a great football player. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel, Mike Balsamo here as well. Let's shift over to the NBA, Ira, and you're actually at this game right now uh, watching the Miami Heat, uh, we think, beat uh, the worst team in the league in Houston. But we talked at the beginning of the show, what an amazing run that the Heat have been on for the last week beating every top team in the in the in the conference and really you know setting themselves cuz they're not even at full strength right now to put themselves in a position like this maybe get um 
uh, who's uh, Victor Oladipo might be coming back for them. Like this team has to be looking at their chances of winning it all and being pretty excited about it. Well, there are three games up in the East right now, and at the, at the final seventeen games, twelve are home and five away. I mean, they have twelve home games. This is one of the, the I've never seen a, a schedule like this with twelve home games. You know, they beat Chicago by thirteen. They look great. I mean, Chicago wasn't playing without Lonzo Ball, but it's, it's again, Hero takes over that game. Uh, rarely do you have these teams when they bring the second team in can play. The, their second team uh, lengthens leads, leads in games, and it just allows more players to get more rest. They play with more fire. Then they lose to the Bucs, and one of the crew, they blew a 14-point lead in the final six minutes of the game. They they were up. It was it was a question where Giannis fouled Butler, but it was on the road. It was like one of those weird type of games, and, and it was a it was shock, but again, it, and then they come back and they beat Brooklyn by six. There was no Kyrie. You know, every time they play someone, they're missing someone, but everybody's missing someone. And they beat Philadelphia by 17. There's no Harden, but they were able to slow down and beat. And beat wasn't able to dominate that game. Like everything you're looking at them and you're like, well, if these teams get this, if these, there's so many ifs, but everybody else has ifs. You know, and the team that I like actually in the East, I like the Celtics. The Celtics are playing great. They beat Brooklyn with Kyrie and Durant both on the team. And that's when Jason Tatum scored 54 last night. They're 14 and 2 in their last 16 games. And they got this rotation of Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Horford, and Robert Williams. They're playing well. I've I've liked Boston. I think they're off to a really bad start, but they're they're coming on and uh, you know, I'm exciting. Now the other teams in the playoffs, Cleveland is suffering injury. They're the sixth seed. Toronto, not sold on them. Charlotte's a, a couple years away. But of course, the weird thing is the ninth and 10 seeds. The Nets are 32 and 33, and the Hawks, who were in the Eastern Conference Finals last year with Trey Young, yeah. they're 31 and 32. So it's going to be interesting to see. And I mean, the only one that could knock like the Nets out would be that the Wizards, who have Beals, not even going to play the rest of the year. They're 29 and 34. They're still a game and a half back. So you still got to think the Nets are going to not, you know, they're going to make the playoffs. Knicks, baby. Watch them <laughs> the run too, happen. The Knicks are too far away. <laughs> they're so terrible. They're terrible and they're getting in fights with things. And, and this is, that's one, that's what the Knicks are the most, just one of the, the, by far the most disappointing team in the NBA this year, besides the Lakers. But uh, I think that's what it is. I think really this point is you're going to look at the end of the year about the Nets and the Hawks, what they can do. Look at the Celtics keep winning and the Heat are just going to have to stay healthy and just keep, and, and they're going to cruise to the number one seed in the East. Let's talk about the West tire because this might be a case, you see it happen a lot in sports where a young team makes it to the finals and just doesn't have what it takes to win. They make it back to the finals next year and they win it. And I could see this kind of starting to come together for Phoenix. And, you know, they're playing right now without Chris Paul, but that might almost be a good thing because you'll have more gas in the tank when they do need it uh, down the stretch. In the playoffs, what do you think is going to happen in the West and what's going on? They're eight games ahead. I mean, their record, they're they're 10 games ahead of, of the Heat right now. I mean, that's unbelievable. They're 51 and 13. They're missing Devin Booker, who's their star player. He's been out with COVID reasons. Uh, Chris Paul's been out for about, I, I guess, like the last four, three, four weeks. Cam Johnson just got hurt. Monty Williams amazing job as coach. He's, last night, they lost to the Bucks, but the Bucks had everybody and they just barely lost and they were missing their top three of their top four players. Yeah. I, I just, I'm amazed at how well the Suns are playing. The Warriors look, the Warriors have lost four in a row. They are missing Draymond Green. Clay Thompson is the integration. Clay Thompson has come back from a torn Achilles and a, and a torn ACL. Has not played in two years. It's, he's not smooth. It's not. He's not looked really good coming back to this. Has not been a good comeback for him. And uh, Memphis is a great story, but John Moran is just one player. And they do have some in a seven games. game series. It's right. not going to be. Easy. It's hard. I mean, and the Jazz are ten and a half back. I like the Jazz. I like the Mavericks. I mean, all these teams. And I'll tell you, the team to just keep your eye on is the Nuggets. The Nuggets now are in uh, are in six uh, the sixth position. They beat the Pelicans last night. Jokic was sixteen for twenty two, three for five from threes, eleven for twelve from the free throw line. 
12 boards, 11 assists, three steals, four blocks, 46 points. They're going to get Jamal Murray back. They're going to get Michael Porter Jr. back maybe this week. This team, the Nuggets are the team that maybe could be the best team. I mean, with with the way Jokic is playing is at an MVP level. And with these other players, they might be the team that, that is able to. And then, you know, Minnesota's nice. They'll be better next year. Clippers are nice. And the, everyone's talking about the Lakers. Lakers have lost four in a row. They're 28 and 35. And LeBron came up last, two nights ago on Saturday night when everything looked like it was totally gone. Scores 54 points. Uh, his record is 61, actually, and uh, just played. I mean, they had a terrible week, but to come back against the Warriors and Curry played terrible in the fourth quarter and LeBron was unstoppable. And you're like looking at that and saying, wow, how can you count LeBron out when you see a performance like that where he was really just dominant? Someone said, oh, did he just take shots? No, he was making every shot he was making. He was making draining threes, making great plays. Um, so you can't count... I'm I'm too afraid to count the Lakers out. So. Oh, I'm counting them out. They're <laughs> dead to me, Ira. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not trusting. I'm not trusting them at all. Pelicans and the Pelicans have the 10th seed. Um, Zion's not even playing for them, but their trade with CJ McCollum worked out great. And Portland is the only team that could maybe come out and knock the Lakers out. But the problem with the Lakers is that they win the play-in series, they'll probably have to play Phoenix or Golden State in that first round, which would be a difficulty. And Westbrook is still not working well. You're not counting on Anthony Davis, but. Boy, LeBron's performance on Saturday. I mean, Saturday was great. I, I watched the the Laker game. I had the Sixer Heat game on, and then you had the before that you had the Duke Carolina game, and then I watched the UFC fight at the end. So it was a, a good. It was a surprisingly great night of sports. Iron Sports, True Oldies Channel. Mike Balsamo here, and we'll get to uh, Wall Street Journal baseball sports writer Jared Diamond in just a second. He's going to talk all about what's going on right now. Why are we not playing baseball? One of the issues, though, Ira, that is being discussed that everyone is pretty aware of. It's one of the bigger issues is a salary cap floor. You know, we almost every sport except baseball has a cap. Nobody has a floor. But here's an interesting stat. The Pirates and every team in baseball made $58 million from their split of TV rights and $118 million from revenue sharing in 2018. Their payroll was $54 million. So you're putting $120 million in your pocket for nothing. And these teams can't field $100 million. You'd still be banking $60 million. The fact that these teams can purposely not compete, like we're seeing with you know the Marlins here, the rumor has it that that's why Jeter left. They don't want to spend any money to win. They don't care. Same thing that we've seen you know for years with you as a tortured um, Pittsburgh uh, Pirates fan. This is a little bit of a mess, and I really wish they'd come up with a floor. Right. I think it, it's necessary. This is not, the system doesn't work. And as I said, the comment I always say is Ben Rotzenberger, if he was a stealer, would have been gone after four or five years, would have been gone after four or five years and not have 18 years at the Steelers. Let's go to Jared Diamond. It's Iron Sports. We're uh, honored to have back again on the show Jared Diamond. He's a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal, author of the book Swing Kings, one of the best baseball books you could ever want to read. But Jared, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports and talking about the lack of baseball being played right now. Yeah, it's, uh, it's so disastrous that <laughs> we're, in the, we're in March now and there's still no sign of baseball in sight. So I saw that you tweeted out, and you can uh, your, twi- your Twitter is at Jared Diamond, uh, J-A-R-E-D-D-D-I-M-I-M-O-N-D. And I saw where you said that a thousand of your, you know, that you keep people keep asking you questions about it, but they don't seem to be that as interested in like knowing your answers. So could you help us a little, let us know what the issues are? I mean, there's the first one, I guess, is the uh, CBT and explain that CBT that keep thinking that terms and, and everyone's like, what's C, what is CBT and what does it mean with baseball? So there are two buckets that I would say are the 
primary issues. One of them is very simple. One of them is not as simple. So I'll start with the simple one. The simple one is that the players are seeking uh, significant increases in compensation for young players, for the youngest players in the union. That will be done when this is all said and done with increases in the minimum salaries. Last year, the minimum salary was $570,500. Uh, which is actually the lowest of all the professional sports in the United States, the major ones. They're looking for a big increase there. Also looking for the creation of a bonus pool that would be paid out to young players based on their performance. So, for example, a guy like, say, Pete Alonso of the New York Mets, last year his salary was about 600000 and change. He made a million dollars for winning the Home Run Derby which makes no sense, obviously, <laughs> and this pool of money would, be, would help guys like that or guys like Juan Soto, these guys that are clearly just superstars who are still making close to the league minimum. That's very easy, and all they're trying to figure out is what are those numbers, and that will get settled. The more complicated issue is what you just mentioned, which is the luxury tax, also known as the competitive balance tax, which is a mechanism that teams – that spend over certain payroll thresholds get taxed. They have to pay tax on the amount over they spend on certain pre-established payroll limits. This is in lieu of a salary cap in baseball. Of course, baseball does not have a salary cap. The players believe that the luxury tax, which was originally designed to curb runaway spending, to stop teams from outspending all the others by wide margins, has been used by owners more recently as a de facto salary cap, and they are seeking significant changes to how that tax operates. So that is the issue that is ultimately, to me, the thorniest in this dispute. If when they settle the luxury tax issue, all the other issues, the one I mentioned, the dozens others I didn't mention, I honestly believe all those other ones would be settled in a couple of days once they get the CBT issue figured out. And the one thing about it is we're used to, like, the cap in football, the cap in baseball, even the cap in hockey. This is not – there's no floor in this. I mean, that's the thing that I think people have hard on putting their arms around in baseball is that's why, well, wait, why are the Pirates only spending $60 million next year or $50 million? And when the the Dodgers are spending $250 or $260, there is no floor. There's just a a ceiling, really. Or it's not even really a ceiling. Well, that's how the players feel, that the ceiling was not supposed to be a ceiling. You know, when the CBT was established, the current version of the CBT, the basic framework of it, was installed in 2002, in the 2002 collective bargaining agreement. At that time, the Yankees had just won three World Series in a row. They had played in four straight World, you know, they had played in four World Series in a row, uh, and five out of six or whatever it was, 98, you know, we could do all remember what the Yankees did. And at that time, I'm making these numbers up, but the point remains, George Steinbrenner would spend $150 million on salary, on payroll, and nobody else was spending more than $70 million. <laughs> Those numbers aren't exactly right, but that's the basic premise. And the CBT was designed to hopefully stop that. But that's not how it's being used now. Now, even teams like the Yankees, and the Dodgers are afraid, are unwilling in many cases to go over the luxury tax by even a dollar, even a cent. And the, the owners have sort of decided 
they I guess I can't say they decided. They they all individually came to the conclusion on their own that maybe we shouldn't be paying luxury tax. So they're just not. And part of this is the players' fault. The players negotiated a deal in 2016 that included very, very harsh penalties for teams that went over the luxury tax multiple years in a row. That was a mistake by the players, it turns out. They made a bad deal. And now they're trying to undo some of what they negotiated into the last contract. And if you know anything about how labor works, it is very easy to negotiate things into the contract. It is very hard to get them out once you've negotiated them in. And that's in many cases the core of this dispute, where the owners are very happy with the status quo, and the players are like, no, 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 we need to roll things back. And what do they talk about? There's a thing called service time manipulation. When the players are brought up in May and June, they're not brought up in April. And, and how does that fit in with this entire collective bargaining agreement negotiation? Yeah, this is, a, this is certainly an issue. And I sort of put this in the same sort of bucket of, of the luxury tax and that bucket being comp- competition issues, uh, issues that uh, involving teams not competing, not trying to win year in and year out. And service time manipulation is an example of that, where what we've seen in recent years um, is teams who have top prospects say, well, you might, they won't say this, but the prospects are major league ready. But instead of having them start the season in the major league, they will send them back down to the minors for a month, for three weeks, because if they do that, they then delay that player's free agency by an entire year just by holding down the minors for a few weeks. And obviously the poster child of this is Chris Bryant with Chicago when he was the best prospect in baseball, was clearly major league ready. And they left him in the minor leagues until literally the day after he had lost, a, he, he no longer was capable of getting a full year of service back in uh, 2014, I think it was, or 15, whatever it was. And we all know he won Rookie of the Year his first year. He won MVP in his second year. It was quite flagrant what the Cubs did. So the union is now trying to negotiate in some mechanisms that would incentivize teams calling up their best prospects on day one. And this is a really true phenomenon. If if everybody remembers, around this time last year, the president of the Seattle Mariners kind of went viral and ultimately got fired because... (laughs) while speaking to a local group, a Rotary Club or some group in Washington, acknowledged publicly that they were not going to call up top prospect Jared Kalenic on opening day because they wanted to preserve a year of free agency. He literally said the quiet part out loud, and that really galvanized the players. And and we'll see what they come up with, how they end up sort of litigating this, but it's certainly an issue that's on the table. And the other thing is that people have been talking about is the number of playoff teams. It looks like I hear 12 and 14. The, is it that the owners want to have more playoff teams because they make more money, and then the players want to have less because they don't really get paid as much for the playoffs? Yeah, all of that is true. The owners want a 14-team playoff. They uh, have already sold a 14-team playoff to ESPN for $100 million a year. My understanding is that if it turns into a 12-team playoff, that would become $85 million a year. So it's a $15 million difference over the life of the deal. It's not a ton, but it's, it's $15 million a year for X number of years. It's not nothing. 
Uh, the players want 12, and there's a few reasons for that, but one of the biggest reasons is that the players want to make sure that the playoffs don't become too diluted. The idea of an expanded playoffs for the players, there's positives for the playoff, for the players because more playoff teams could, if executed correctly, inspire more competition among teams. More teams would say, well, i got to go for it. i got to sign that for agent. i got to make that big trade at the trade deadline because we have a chance of making the playoffs, and maybe in the old system we didn't. But the problem becomes if it becomes so easy to make the playoffs, you end up in a situation, say, like the NBA, where suddenly there isn't much value to making the playoffs because there isn't a lot of value to getting that lower seed. The other thing the players are very concerned about with this is that they want to make sure teams that do well in the regular season are rewarded for their efforts. They don't want a situation where the playoffs become super random, where you're putting 14 teams in and any of them have a chance to win. They want to make sure the players care very deeply about the teams that win, if you win your division or if you win 100 games in the regular season, that you have a better chance of winning the World Series than the team that sneaks in with 83 wins. And if you watch baseball, you know that postseason baseball has a lot of randomness to it. Right, and in, right. unlike other sports, unlike in other sports, you could take the worst team in baseball, put them up against the best team in baseball in a seven-game series, and there's a decent chance that the worst team would win four out of seven games because that's how baseball works. So that's another reason why the players are a bit concerned with the larger postseason. Although this is just me talking, I don't think it's the deal breaker. I think if they feel like they could get wins in other areas, they will agree to the 14-team playoff. Ultimately, that's just that's just my sort of my opinion. I'm not. They wouldn't say that publicly, but that's how I sort of view it. And one last thing is about the rule changes we keep hearing about, um, potentially a pitch clock, uh, bigger bases. I, I don't know where that where the call for bigger bases was. No shift, the sh- limiting the shifts. And then the most important one that people will understand is, this has gone my entire life, it's been the National League American League, the DH. And now there'll be a universal DH. And those are some of the rules that we expect, if they come to resolution, that this would be in the this coming year, perhaps. Well, it would be a little bit different. The, the DH will be immediate. The DH will be in the National League in 2022. That is 99.9% certain uh, that there will be a DH in the National League this upcoming season. Both parties won it. It worked out okay in 2020. The other rule changes probably will not happen in 22, but are likely to happen in 23, assuming things proceed the way they appear they are proceeding. One of them, like you said, is a ban on shifts. Uh, that would require there to be two infielders on each side of second base, and infielders would be required to start on the dirt. No more second base than playing shallow right field. The idea being that would lead to more batted balls that turn into hits, uh, which would inspire more contact, maybe a little less swinging for the fences. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and you mentioned the other ones, the larger bases issue. That's mostly an injury prevention uh, rule more than anything else to try to stop uh, guys from clipping each other, from runners from running into first baseman, things like that. That's the primary reason for that one. And the big one is the pitch clock. And that, to me, it's, it's long overdue. It is time for a pitch clock. It is proven in other levels of baseball to have a big impact on the time of game. And I very much welcome that uh, whenever it comes. So we've been talking to Jared Diamond, the baseball writer for Wall Street Journal. And so 
Jared, what is your your uh, crystal ball view of what will happen in the next, I guess, week or 10 days? Is this something that could get settled, or do you think this might drag on for a while? Look, I want to believe it's going to be sooner rather than later. I don't think it's going to be settled tomorrow. Um, you know, don't hold me to this. My predictions about this have been repeatedly wrong, but I'm sort of eyeballing sort of a May 1st, first week of May opening day. That is my uninformed prediction. Well, it's informed, but not doesn't mean it's right. But they'll get this done sometime in March. They'll get spring training going, you know, right at the beginning of April, end of March. And uh, it'll, they'll play starting in early May. I'm hope it's early, I hope it's earlier than that. I desperately hope I am wrong, but that's sort of what I see right now. But, like, all it takes is one good meeting. All it takes is one of these guys, one of these parties to – make an offer that the other side likes, and suddenly uh, everything changes. So we'll see. And we're down here in West Palm Beach, and there's four four teams that play here plus the Mets within like 20 minutes away, so there's five teams. Is there any chance they'll have even a spring training for a couple of weeks, or are they going to go straight to no games and just try to start playing the, uh, the major league games immediately? There's going to be a spring training, a uh, four-week spring training, whether that happens in Florida or in the home ballparks, really depends on when this gets settled. Obviously, if this goes on a while, you're probably not doing spring training uh, in Florida and Arizona in June or July. It's just too too rainy, too hot. Uh, but if they get this settled soon and you're starting spring training in a couple of weeks, I do expect them to be in, in Florida, but it's it's really a little too soon to know. Wow. Okay. Well, Jared, I know you're busy. You're in Fort Myers, uh, and I really appreciate you coming on uh, Iron Sports and giving us some update in terms of what the collective bargaining agreement and when we could see baseball in the near future. Let us hope for the best because I'm very sad without baseball right now. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Jared, for coming on. Thank you. Great stuff there from Jared Diamond of the Wall Street Journal. Ira, so let's talk a little golf. Scotty Scheffler in his first 70 PGA Tour events, zero wins. In his last three, two wins. <laughs> Pretty decent turnaround. Scotty Scheffler's on fire. He's on fire. It was a big win at Bay Hill in a tournament that only 10 players finished under par. It's one of those things. The wind, it seems like every time that tournament, if there's no wind, people score well. But if there's really windy, against like the Honda, the same thing. But we saw that the wind was 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 great. And Scheffler sort of hung on. I mean, and it was one of those things where he saved par on 15-16 with uh, great you know putts. And then he just hung on on 17 and 18. And then he was in the clubhouse, but uh, Hovland, you know, Ho Victor Hovland has been playing really well. He, I mean, he's, yeah, top five in the world right now. And he was a young golfer from Norwegian. I think he's about 23 years old. And and he had a, on Saturday, he was 10 under. He had a five-stroke lead. I thought he was ready to run away with it. And, and against the Genesis, he also played extremely well in the, I mean, he, it's like every, Hovland is like every tournament he's in. He's, he's, he's in, he's competing for it. Um, he still had a chance. Um, he was, you know, on Sunday, uh, he bogeyed 17. He was in the lead, bogeyed, and then he just parred 18. But he had a chance. And Horschel, Billy Horschel came in with a chance on 18 uh, to tie. I mean, Scheffler's there practicing and waiting for two golfers to come in, perhaps to tie him, and they weren't able to. I mean, that, everyone was all bunched up there. Uh, Terrell Hatton, he finished up at four under like an hour and a half before. And he still, I mean, here's someone who... Really, when they saw where scores were coming, Hatton might have just would have said, I won the tournament because it, it was lucky. You know, he finished in second place, but he really almost cruised in in terms of if, if Scheffler would somehow birdied, bogeyed 15 or 16, Scheffler, you know, he would have at least played in a playoff. And then Gary Woodland, who we saw in the Honda Classic, is now, I mean, man, he dropped 130th in the world 
And after the U.S. Open, winning the U.S. Open at, at Pebble Beach, and he had a chance on an eagle on 16. He went to uh, got, to, got to six under. He had the lead, but then he double bogeyed 17, bogey on 18, and uh, finished in, in like I guess thir- three under. So it was three shots back. But it was uh, it, it, it was one of those. And t- Taller Gooch, I was going to bring him up. So been playing really good, been playing great, and he had the lead. I mean, all, Hovland and Gooch were young players who had the lead. He started the day and he had, in the lead, but shot a seventy-seven, wasn't able to hold mm-hmm. on to it. But uh, that was uh, yeah. No, we've been I've been watching Taylor Gooch play. You know, top twenties consistently this season. He's been on the show before. I hope that when he gets too famous, he doesn't blow us off. Either. We got to be able to get <laughs> Taylor Gooch back on. But uh, no, congratulations to him. Congratulations to Scotty Scheffler. But here we go. We're going to Ponte Vedra Beach this week, Ira. I'm really excited for this. Bryson DeChambeau not going to play, um, which I'm not a huge fan. doesn't really bother me. I just want to see the best fields possible regardless. I'm really excited for this. And odds are you're going to be there at least one day. Yeah, I'll probably – it's either like Wednesday, Thursday, or Sunday. I'll come to for one of those days. I, I, it, I love going to this tournament. It's such easy. You drive up there, just park. Um, I was shocked by how many top-name golfers were not at Bay Hill. The guy We saw what happened at the Honda, but but – Dustin Thomas was not at Bay Hill, so he took two weeks off. Dustin Johnson took two weeks off, wasn't in there. No Morikawa, so he took two weeks off. And Brooks didn't play this. Candelay didn't play it. Choffley didn't play it. And neither did Bryson. It was a lot of players that, so I think gearing up for the players. And I, the, the field wasn't as strong as I would have thought at Bay Hill, considering, you know, they still had John Rahm. They had Rory, Rory who played and who played. You know, Rory starts with a 65, ends with two 76s. But uh, the players is interesting. You know, I went through the past winners. Like, since Tiger won in 2013, Martin Keimer won. Ricky Fowler actually won in 2015. Jason Day, 16. Sue Wee Kim won in 2017. Webb Simpson, 18. Rory won in 19, and they didn't play in 20. And that was when the, the COVID hit that tournament. And then uh, JT won over Westwood last year, 2021. But if you look at the odds... I mean, there were some. I mean, this is a great betting. So, Rob is a 12 to 1. Morikawa, 13 to 1. But, like, Brooks Kepka is 40 to 1. Jordan Spieth is 40 to 1. Like, those are great. Yeah, big names. Odds. Yeah. Like, I mean, you're getting 40. It's like if you're betting a horse race and you're getting 40 to 1 on major winners like Kepka and 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 Brooks, I would throw money on that. I mean, I don't I don't think Rom's deserved. Why is Rom deserve to be 12 to 1. I mean, Morikawa has been playing great. I understand that at 13 to 1, but, you know, when it go Scotty Scheffler's hot or Hovland, you know, Hovland's at 20 to 1, but I can't believe the odds for Brooks and Spieth. I was shocked by that. No, yeah, it's definitely surprising. And, we, you know, we talk about it on this show. Brooks shows up for these things. It's not going to be, like, I would be shocked if he wasn't in the top 20. Even though he hasn't been playing great, this is just where he shines. It's not going to be surprised anyone if he wins. He just didn't make putts. I mean, he wasn't missing putts at the Honda, but he wasn't making the 10, 12-foot birdie putts that he normally did. But he was hitting the ball great. So I think that you know, now with the week off, I, he's healthy. I don't know why Brooks, you know, certainly at a at a major or the players, he's got to be in you know contention at all times. And Sid Jordan Spieth has played well, too. I I I was shocked by this. I mean, Berger, who is a 30 to 1. So just great odds. Like, if you're betting golf, I, this is a great weekend, I'm sure, to, to bet some of these players. There's, it's so deep now. So many players. No Phil Mickelson, though, in this tournament. And, of course, no Tiger Woods. It, and you, you are right when you say that. It's not like back when Tiger was playing and there's like it was him or VJ every week and maybe Phil. There's 25 really, really good players on, on the tour. So it just makes it harder to pick one. One thing that I do love about golf, Ira, and I tell everyone that – not a golfer, doesn't like to watch golf on TV, one of the things I'll always say to them is, the coolest thing is, I can go play that course if I want to. For the most part, I mean, this one's a public course, so anyone can go play it. But even private courses, if you have enough money, you work it out, I can't go play with my buddies at Yankee Stadium. 
They're not going <laughs> to let me. I can't have a scrimmage game at Dolphin Stadium. They're not going to let you me. You can't even go to I, Roger Dean Stadium <laughs> and play. <laughs> exactly. But I can go play this. So I looked. Two weeks from this weekend, take guess how much for a round of golf. How um, much? 550 bucks to play in the morning. Wow. I, it, that's not that crazy. I mean, it's too much for my, too rich for my blood. But if you're a serious golfer and you have the money, why not go play this course literally a week after the best players in the world played it? Re- really cool stuff. And you're right. In tennis, you can't play center court Wimbledon. You can't play center court French <laughs> Open. I mean, you try to walk on, they'll arrest you. So it's uh, not going to happen. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk NHL here for just a minute because I, I don't think people realize outside of diehard Florida Panthers fans just how good this team is. And my friends and family that are season ticket holders for the Panthers say it's electric in there. It's never been like this in the history of the BB&T Center, FLA Live Arena. And there's a good reason. They've scored 227 goals. That's like 40 more than the average in the East Conference. These guys score five or six goals every night. It's really exciting to watch. Um, Rangers, my New York Rangers, they've been very good. They've overachieved, but their goalie, Igor Shesterkin, probably going to win the Vezina. He's playing out of his out of his mind every night. He's not getting much defense in front of him. They don't score a lot of goals. This has really been on him. But the Eastern Conference is really, it's going to be a three-horse race like it was last year between Tampa, Florida, and Carolina. And they're, of course, 1-2 and 1 in their conferences. And then in the West, you look at the Colorado Avalanche, who are just as good as the Panthers at scoring goals. They were the best, uh, best young defenseman in the league. This team, if they don't come out of the West, I will be absolutely shocked. And we say this all the time, and eight seeds in hockey win the Stanley Cup. But Colorado is just so good, and the rest of the West is kind of, eh. For me, they they have to make the Stanley Cup. Anything else you want to throw in? No, I'm interested where the Pow the Penguins are playing. You know, in terms of uh, good, certainly all things considered, I think that would be the question in terms of Crosby is he's getting up there in terms of an age and you're like is he going to have one more run in him and how he's going to do that. And certainly with Washington with Ovechkin in terms of how he's going to play and also dealing with all the Russian Ukraine situation. You know, he's the star Russian player in the league, MVP, all those things. Penguins have been very good lately, and yeah, time's running out on Sid the Kid. So let's see if they can put something together. The league's always better when Pittsburgh's good. You mentioned earlier you had a really busy Saturday and you topped it off with UFC. Yeah, I was disappointed. Of all the things I watched <laughs> on Saturday, the weekend, it was I watched UFC 272. Now, Kobe Cunningham is the number one welterweight and Jorge Mazaval is the number six welterweight. They were best friends. They've been very close. They had a falling out, which is you know great in you know, sports and everything like that. And coming, it was it was five rounds of nothing. I mean, Covington destroyed Mazaval. Now this is Mazaval's like fourth big main event in a row that he's lost. Um, and 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 the thing about that took away from this is that Kamari Usman, who's the champion, he beat Mazdaval in 2020 and in 2021, and he also beat Covington twice. So now he's beat both of those. He lost. He beat him in 19 and 21. So Usman is clearly the champion of the league. And I have two people who who have are 0 and 2 against Usman, and you're watching them, and I'm like, did I pay 70 bucks to watch? Watch this, yeah. and it wasn't even exciting. It was more like coming to just dominated Mazaval. Mazaval wasn't in; he lost every single round. And the other ones, the other events going up to it, weren't even good. It was just a bad. It was one of the bad UFC nights. I, I just was not impressed. And the only thing I would say about it is, I I think this is another comment, and I told someone who works with the UFC about this. I, they around the rink now when they were doing it in in, in Saudi Arabia or whatever the, in the Middle East, it was with no fans. It's one thing, but now I noticed that there's not there's the reporters and there's the the commentators. They need to have more fans. It just seemed like people were falling. Like it just the, the excitement when you see a boxing match and everyone's getting on their feet. I, I just sort of missed that with the UFC fight. And I, I did. I want to say the 272 card was bad. It was one of the worst pay per views they've had. And I, I think I was hoping for more, and I, I was exciting because Covington is dynamic, and so is Mazdaval, and you think they have this hatred towards each other it just didn't seem like it was that much of a great fight at all what about uh, nascar 
Well, Alex Bowman, that was exciting. Alex Bowman beat Kyle Larson. They went into overtime, so they had two more laps, and they went literally. I mean, it was so exciting to watch that for two laps, just, you know, nose to, like, door to door, literally going around the track. Now, they're both teammates, and Hendrick said, I do not want to see your teammates because Larson issued with Chase Elliott with an accident the previous week. He said, I don't want to see you teammates do not crash each other. So they went they went door to door for two whole laps, and uh, and uh, Bowman won by 0.178 seconds and won the won the race but that was it was a good race it was exciting and nice and i've been the one in vegas it's so it's cool i mean there's so much like think about vegas they had the usc the on the night before and then sunday they had the nascar race but you see all these celebrities you know there were tons of celebrities usc fight there were tons of celebrities at the laker uh warrior game and there were tons of celebrities at the duke game like there were celebrities everywhere so that saturday night was a was a pretty big night in sports yeah you i'm surprised you weren't there (laughs) he's at one of them um so what's on the docket for for next week or this coming week. We talked about Houston tonight. Houston tonight. And decision is on Wednesday. If I don't go, I'm either going to go to the players or I'm going to go see the Suns. Now, the Suns probably won't have Booker, Paul. Like, they're going to be missing players. But it, I, this is the one time they come to Miami. So it's a big ticket on Wednesday night. So I'm debating do I go to players Wednesday, look at the practice round, and then go Thursday? Or do I go to the players on Sunday and then go to the Heat game, which I'm leaning towards right now, going to the Heat game on Wednesday night. So I'm excited about that. And then next week is, uh, is you know, I'm going to probably go to one of the NCAA tournaments first round games, watch maybe the first second, first to two, and then go to maybe the third or fourth round in Greenville. Maybe Duke will be playing there. We are out of time. Thank you so much to Jared Diamond. He's Ira. I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.